this is a big and wild deal. Imagine investing a year and a half of, you know, building a DVD by mail service in the UK. Uh, and we stopped it one week to go. And for me, it's like, oh, what were we thinking? We said we were going to get big on DVD and then we were going to lead streaming and then we would go international. Why'd we get ahead of ourselves, right? Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, VP of Product Marketing at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. Inspired by the proven objectives and key results goal setting methodology, GTM Hub offers the most flexible results management system for mission driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. In this episode, I'm joined by Gibson Biddle, former VP of product at Netflix and chief product officer at Chegg. He's now a speaker, teacher, and workshop host. We discuss many of his tools, models, and frameworks like Glee and SMT, how culture is not a touchy-feely soft thing, but rather something that describes the skills and behaviors expected of everyone in an organization. Gib puts me in the hot seat a few times as we examine some Netflix case studies together. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's jump in. All right, so I am really stoked today because I have a special guest. You probably, if you're a product manager out there, know his newsletter pretty well, Ask Gib. So Gibson Biddle is joining us today. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, Jenny. Thanks for having me. I ask the same question to everyone who joins the show. Like, who are you and how do you get to where you are today? Sure. My name's Gib and uh, I'm in my maybe third career. So uh, to give you a sense, I was an English major in college, which is sort of an unusual background for product leaders. Um, I started a sailing school during college. I took a year off and then continued it afterwards. So I was helping people to race sailboats fast. And then I, um, after sailing school, I joined a job at an ad agency, McCann Erickson, in the mailroom. That was how you started back then. Uh, and I grew up to be a marketing person, so that's really what I was. And then in my sort of late 20s, I went to business school, and then I switched over into, from marketing into product. So I started building product for the first time at Electronic Arts, Bang Bang Shoot 'em Up Game Company. Then I got inspired to help kids build educational software and started, I was a co-founder of a company called Creative Wonders, and we sold that to the learning company. That's where Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful Shark Tank, he was the CEO. We helped oh. that to grow. Yep, we helped that to grow up and then um, sold that to Mattel. And then I entered the dot-com era. So I've done some failed startups and some, helped some successful ones to grow. So I was at Netflix from 2005 to 2010 as the VP of product. And then I was the chief product officer at Chegg, which is a textbook rental and homework help company that's went public in late 2013. In the last five years, I do a mix of things. So I have been the three-day-a-week product leader for a company called Life360, another one called Metro Mile, another one called NerdWallet. Um, but mainly I teach... I taught at Stanford. I really like talking outside the classroom the best. So I've done like 150 talks, workshops, and exec events in the last 15 months, all virtual, of course, in COVID, which is really I've enjoyed. Um, I try to keep a flexible life. Uh, so I don't work direct deposit. I'm not required to go to work every day. Uh, and yes, about six months ago, I started a, a new thing, my Ask Gib product newsletter. Um, really, my latest creative challenge is writing. So I, I just did 30 years, so I don't feel too badly about taking two or three minutes to describe it. <laughs> As you shouldn't. I, I would, yes, I encourage you to brag about it because <laughs> we should feel good about our accomplishments and our journeys. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, wow. Where do we go from here? Well, I'll, I guess we'll start here. I remember early in my career, I was talking to someone and they said, Jenny, in business, there are kind of common pieces of the business blueprint, your mission, your vision, your strategy, and your culture. And it seems that you can tack on in front of all of those words, product. 
uh, pretty easily. And I remember reading once where folks talk about this product vision and instead what they're really talking about is this mission statement and they confuse a slogan about their purpose with a product vision. As a product leader yourself and someone who, you know, is asked for thought leadership and guidance, do you see the same thing? Why do you think it's important to have a product vision to begin with? Yeah, so a lot of the things that you described are going to be different for different companies, different stages, whether it's consumer or B2B, um, but different from one company to the next. So the, the, the key thing is when you use those words and you're part of a team, make sure you describe what you mean. Mm. And it's really a good idea to have a, a, a common understanding because honestly, that there are different definitions of all the terms that you brought up and, and that's okay. Um, you know, this is really about language and, and developing shared language for a team is really important in, in terms of building a shared sense of where you're going and anything else. To your specific question, that the things that I find helpful for product leadership, I do describe something called a product vision. Um, and I, I use a very simple framework to describe what I mean. It, it's called the Glee model. What is the initial thing that you're going to get big on? That's the G in, in, in Glee. And then five or maybe even 10 years next, what's the next big step you'll take to lead even further? That's the L part. And if you think five or 10 years out further, uh, how might you expand further from there? And this product vision, all I'm really nicely trying to do is get people to think long-term. Because if you think long-term, you realize that in the long-term, anything's possible. But most of us, we, you know, we get stuck in the next 6 to 12 months or the next year or two. And really, it's hard to accomplish a lot in a year or two. But imagine if you think out 5 or 10 or 10 or 15. So that Glee model for, for Netflix, for instance, is Netflix got big on DVDs. And then they led streaming. They didn't launch streaming until about eight years after startup. And then after they were a digital service, they could expand international. And this, this, this E, the, the Glee model, G-L-E-E-E, -E -E, it could go on forever. After the international expansion, it went into original content. And actually, they're now sort of hypothesizing about the next big step for them, whether it's games or interactive stories. We don't know. And these are all hypotheses, everything that we do. Anyways, so your original question I think it's helpful to have a, I just called that a product vision. It's pretty kind of skirts, skates, you know, with, uh, with a, a company strategy. Um, by the way, company strategies are really vague and ambiguous, and I, I haven't really developed frameworks for that. Hmm. Um, but for, so for a product, I, I think it's important to have a long-term product vision to get some focus in the long term. Yeah, I think it's important to have a product strategy. Um, and my component parts of that, you have, you have metrics that help define, you know, whether your strategies and strategies are really high level theories and hypotheses about in the long term, how you'll delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways. So you have these product strategies, you have these metrics that help measure if you're moving the needle or not. And then you have tactics and tactics in the work that we do in, in product leader work. It's all projects, right? So to give you an example, uh, one of the theories or hypotheses in Netflix about how Netflix would delight customers in these hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways, one theory was personalization. And I'm, I'm sharing a working, a theory that worked. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the idea was personalization makes it easy to find movies you love. Huge hard-to-copy advantage. So Netflix understands the member taste for 200 million people worldwide. Or if you extend it to the sub-profiles in a family, probably like close to a billion people. And that's really hard to copy advantage there. And then margin enhancing is just my fancy way of saying make money. Um, and the way that personalization helps build Netflix's business, uh, they understand everybody's taste. So they, 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 they really are just trying, they, they'd like to provide you every story, every movie, every TV show. What they're really doing is making sure they invest the right amount of money in each of these stories. So based on all that personalization data, they predicted that 100 million people would like Stranger Things. And because of that, they were 
willing to invest 500 million bucks. They thought 20 million people would enjoy watching BoJack Horseman. And because of that, they spent 100 million. And they expected a million folks would like to watch Everest climbing documentaries. And because of that, they spent 5 million. And so this is just the concept of right-sizing. But think about the economic power that gives Netflix. You know, it, it knows what to spend money and what not to. So I just gave you an example of how personalization delights customers in hard-to-copy margin-enhancing ways. Metrics, you know, at the end of the day, at Netflix, they're just trying to improve retention. Mm. And so at startup, it was like 10% canceled each month. And in 2005, 5% canceled each month. Today, it's about 2%. Oh, um, Wow. Yeah, and those two, those two, take a guess at why people cancel Netflix, Jenny. They're just overwhelmed the the number of streaming services they possibly have. That's one of the guesses I would say. Well, they got a lot of choices, right? Yeah, that's correct. And then, I mean, think about it another way. Uh, they kind of feel like they've watched everything already on Netflix. Mm. So maybe it's summer, and you know they shouldn't be rotting their brains out, right? <laughs> There's nothing good on TV, and you're just like, you well, maybe you're yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you're right. So what's the other reason they cancel? Uh, I, I honestly can't think of anything. Like, I, I mean, are they trying to save a quick buck? It's not crazy expensive. Pretty close. Pretty close. There's no money in their account. Mm. Okay? So it's their debit card, and boom, Netflix hits it, and there's nothing there. Right. And they're reminded, hey, you're going to repay. And they're like, oh, I don't actually use the service anyway. There's alternatives, so I'm out. That makes Correct. sense. They're reminded yeah, so, that they even do it. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm, I'm trying to drive it back to metrics. So yeah. at the highest level, retention is the metric. Challenge retention is really hard to move. You know, think about it. From 2005 to today, that's uh, 16 years. Retentions move from 5% canceling every month to, to 2%. Two. Yeah. Wow. So think about it, that's slow, right? Right. But it it's so you need more sensitive metrics. So for instance, and this is really a head twister, but for Netflix, the proxy metric was percentage of members that rated at least 50, five zero movies in a month. This this is in the early days of DVD. What percent of members rated at least fifty movies, five zero, in the course of their first month with the service? What would you one percent? I feel like it'd be yeah, yeah, very yeah. low, really yeah, yeah. low. You're, you're my very curmudgeonly guesser, and there's usually a range. You know, usually people are like 2 to, two to 5%. <laughs> right. Yeah, what was it? So the real answer is we drove it all the way up to like 28%. But that wow. was a proxy. Yeah, okay. that was a proxy. The idea was people were rating in order to get better recommendations and suggestions from Netflix. And that was so a, they saw the benefit. Yeah, or, or frankly, because they were rating – we took it as a sign that they believed that personalization was good and helpful. It was valuable. It was a signal. That's that right. makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So yes. And, and by the way, I'm doing the SMT model right now. So the strategy I can is tell. personalization. Yeah, the, right. The metric is, you know, percentage of members that rated at least 50 things in the first two months. And then the T is the projects or tactics. Right. And so, for instance, that one of the drivers of that, metric was something called the ratings wizard. There was a little tab that said movies you'll heart, a little yeah, red heart. I remember this. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the designers describe as fugly. Um, anyways, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what fugly meant then, but now I, now I do. Anyways, um, so that, that was an example of a project um, that, that moved that metric a lot. Um, anyways, so I said, gosh, product vision is important. I just gave you a sense of how to think about product strategy. Um, you know, okay. So my thing upon reflection, you know, so I had five years not to work every day, which, sure. which I enjoy a lot. Um, and so for me, it's this combination of a product strategy. That's how you form your hypotheses for how mm. you'll delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways. You don't actually know what's going to work. They're hypotheses. So that's when I get to essentially it's the, uh, I call it consumer science but it's the scientific method. You form a hypothesis. My hypothesis is that personalization will create a simpler, easy experience, simpler, easier experience. And then you find a variety of ways to test that hypothesis. Uh, and, and that really gets to the high-paced experimentation. That's, that's what I call consumer science. It doesn't matter if you're in a B2B company or enterprise. It's the same thing. Just I just happen to use consumer science as a phrase. I could say scientific method, 
Sure. So you got strategies, you got the consumer science, and then my third, and these are sort of like three legs of a stool, if you will, is, is culture. So culture is, it's the skills and behaviors that you expect of everybody on the team. Um, it's the values that, that describe those skills and behaviors. And how do you shape so, that, right? Because yeah. I've, I've thought through this before and people have asked me, you know, Jenny, what do you think culture is? And I think it's four things. It's who you hire, who you fire, who you reward, and who you reprimand. It really is based on how the organization responds to how people are behaving or what kind of stuff that they're doing, whether or not the organization agrees that that is acceptable or not. And then they shape accordingly. Like, that's how I think about it. But perhaps you have a completely, you're like, Jenny, you're completely wrong. This is insane. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, because I know culture is kind of something people ask you about. And you believe, and I, I agree, it's amazingly important to yeah, an yeah. organization's capability to deliver, you know, those experiences to market. Yeah, well, let me let me finish my check, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So you got the product strategies, the scientific method, the consumer science, and then you got the culture. Right. To answer your question, I, I think you got it right. I mean, I'd say it's who you hire, who you fire, and who you promote. Okay. Um, but and it, your question was, how the heck do you get there? I just let me how do you get why. there? Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna try to illustrate why I think it's important. Um, so imagine you're on a 20 year journey, or 30 year journey, or 50 year journey. You got these strategies. You got the experimentation. Guess what? Most people leave a company after three to five years, right? Mm. So where, where what's this, where's the storehouse of accumulated knowledge and accumulated learning? And that's, it, it lives in culture. It's these skills and behaviors. And frankly, so companies with well-developed cultures, the reason I focus on it, I know it sounds like a like touchy-feely soft thing, but I focus on it because it helps people to make great decisions about people, product, and the business without talking to each other. And mm. if you don't have something like culture, then what you do is heavy-handed rules and processes. Absolutely. And rules and processes suck, right? Yep. But especially like bright, talented, highly creative people do not like to be told what to do, and they don't like to be told how to do it. And this is really the magic of culture. Um, okay, so now I'm going to come back to your question. Um, imagine you're a company that's between 10 and 100 people, okay? How, how many people does your company have, Jenny? We're just shy of 180 like at this point. Yeah, yeah 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. 200. Yeah, let's just call it a rounded up. Okay, so let's imagine you hadn't taken a shot at defining your culture. The first question I'll ask is, tell me about the stars in your mm. building. And these are the people that really embody the company, that they, 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 they have, they deliver the results, but there's some skills and behaviors that really make them special. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I start with, so tell me about some of the stars. What are some of their skills and behaviors? And now, I mean, by the way, companies have cultures, even if you haven't defined them, right? 100% agree. Yeah, yeah. And so then here's the other interesting thing. Often the CEO, it, it embodies a lot of this, that they, they are providing the role modelship. Most of the time, frankly, it's positive. Um, and their real struggle is, you know, like I'm sure every day the CEO of your company, you know, now with 180 people, like, well, what, you know, what's up with that person, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyways, so the, the culture exists. And the way I encourage people to think about it is what are the values? And then to be specific, what are the skills and behaviors that define that value? So let's do this one. Um, either of us could look it up. But candor is a value at Netflix, right? It's one of those about maybe eight or 10 values today. What does candor mean, right? Hmm. And one of the definitions of candor at Netflix, you only say things about a person that you would say to their face, right? Huh. Um, I mean, that's, it's a very nice description of what, what do you mean by candor, right? Um, it, it, yeah, for kicks, I'm going to look it up because this is the interwebs and I can. Oh, I'm glad I did this. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> it's not there anymore. Good, good, good. Okay. Oh, so wow. Let's, let's, yeah, yeah. It's changed since Patty McCord and you all were there. Uh, no, huh? it's, it, this is good. It changes all the time. Oh, it's a good story, I'm sure. Oh, it, it's in integrity. Okay. Yeah. So the definition, the value at Netflix is integrity. 
Uh, and I'll just read the skills and behaviors that expected in, in adherence with this value. You are known for candor, authenticity, tra transparency, and being non-political. You only say oh. things about fellow employees that you say to their face. You admit mistakes freely and openly. You treat people with respect, regardless of their status or disagreement with you. You always share relevant information, even when worrisome to do so. And this is their definition of integrity, which includes this notion of candor. It's fascinating. Anyways, so th this, th this value is describing the skills and behaviors of integrity in a very specific Netflix way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so just imagine... You know, like you're sitting down with your boss, just sort of a six-month check-in, how am I doing? And then they'll sort of look at this list. Hmm, are you known for candor, authenticity, transparency, and being non-political? You only say things about fellow employees that you say to their face, right? Like th these are the skills and behaviors wanted. And this is a way of encouraging behavior without having rules and process. And the cool thing is, is if companies embody all the values of a company, they tend to deliver really striking results. Um, but uh, just a funny thing, generally, if you evaluate the CEO of a company against the values, they're, they're terrified of this. I'm like, hey, let's have <laughs> the exec team rate you on all Ooh, of these values. Right. And guess what? They do surprisingly well because they actually mm -hmm. set the culture, right? Anyways, back to your question of how do you how do you articulate the values, the skills and behaviors you expect of your employees? Uh, and that's just one drill, which is, okay, look to your stars. What, 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 what do they embody? What are, their, mm. what are the values they embody? Or more specifically, what are their skills and behaviors? Uh, I just gave you another, here's another drill. Like you have your swag, your stupid wild ass guess on the articulation of that culture. Now let's evaluate the CEO against those values. Oh, let's evaluate the organization as a whole against those values. And does it feel right? Does it make sense? This is an exercise. It's a way of sort of testing, you know, essentially your hypotheses about what the right. values should be. Okay, so here's the, here's the interesting thing. We've said that culture and these values help people to make great decisions about people, product, and the business. Right. I have a little case for you. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So uh, we're at Netflix. Imagine it's today. Um, there's a marketing strategy meeting at Netflix. There's about 20 people. They're online. Um, and it turns out that three people in the room, director level, are on Slack. And they're kind of shishpering. They're... Yeah, they're trash talking different people in the room behind their back. Okay. <sighs> um, and, and the issue is they think that it's just a conversation among the three of them, but it's actually public. Okay. And so this meeting happens. And then three months later, somebody falls upon this thread, uh, somebody at the company, and they realize, whoa, these people were trash talking their peers during this meeting on Slack. And they, because of this idea of integrity, this value, you're known for candor, authenticity, transparency, and being non-political. You only say things about fellow employees that you say to their face. They, they bring it to their boss and they say, hey, this was going on. Okay. So now you're the boss of these three people and you're reading these Slack threads. And the question is, back to your definition of culture, or I'll, I'll twist it a little bit. What do you do as their boss? And your choices are do nothing. Another one is to reprimand. And a reprimand means a stern talking to. If we see a behavior like this again, we're going to let you go. We're, you're you're going to be asked to leave the company. Or the third is you just fire the person for, for this behavior. What would you do if you were their boss? Oh gosh, I'm I'm being interviewed here. Mm. This is nerve wracking. And this is a case. I'll tell you a trick about cases. You you can always ask me questions, okay? Because at the end of the day, in decision making, 
you, you, you need to gather information. In this case, you're allowed to ask questions. I want you to ask enough questions so that you can get to an opinion and then we will debate it. And this is how okay, so, decisions get made. So we talked about, um, we talked about what it would impact, right? So the way that I think about it, I guess the question is, how are these individuals performing? Like for the business, what are, what's going they're doing, on? They're, they're doing, doing good. good. They're doing somewhere between good and great. You know? Okay. They're, they're is, delivering do, results. Have, yeah. Have they had a history of this kind of behavior? We don't think so. Right. Uh, in this case, they clearly thought it was a private conversation. It turned out to be public. We don't know. Right. We really can't okay. know. Okay. Okay. I mean, they got caught, right? <laughs> they got caught. Has there been any similar, I mean, if we're worth, I'm thinking like a lawyer, like have, has there been precedents of this behavior before? Ah, um, really and how has the other managers, if at all, have handled such situations? Yeah, this, this is actually the first time something like this has happened, right? Okay. Um, you know, this is a little bit more notable because there's a recording of it, if you will. There's three director right. level folks. I mean, Directors are, are, it's a leadership role within the company. You know, of course, people make mistakes like this all the time. Like my joke is when people come to me often about people issues, I'll, I'll say, okay, when you spoke to that person, w what did they say? Okay. Because I know they didn't talk to the person about it directly. And I'm trying to encourage that direct behavior. So, of course, you know, lots of people make this mistake one off. They'll say, Oh my God, I can't believe what that person said in the meeting. You know, so, oh, well, so when you, when you ask them what they were thinking, what did they say, right? That's my way of tamping down on trash talking, right? Um, anyways, but no, there's no direct uh, example just like this that will provide you a reference. Okay. And so let's just, let's go up your instincts. Um, does this seem like it's important enough to have a conversation with, with the person, with these three people? I would say yes, because yeah. it is in violation of the culture. Now, yeah. the degree to which the punishment, if you will, um, should be levied, that is the questionable part. I, don't, I do not think leaving it alone is a solution set yeah. that is palatable. Yeah. Firstly, because not doing anything suggests that this behavior is permissible. Correct. Uh, and that sets a bad precedence. Okay. So but at the same time, you don't want to freak people out and say, well, you made a mistake. There's never been any indication that they've behaved this way before. Um, they are performers. So then I would probably go for the middle route. Yeah. But I probably would encourage the individual who I brought it up. Yeah. In the same vein that you said you tamped down on these things, is like, did you, you saw this? Yeah behavior did you say anything yeah turns out they did and if you didn't right? yeah yeah they, they did and then you know to their point of view it, 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 like the, the individual wasn't really moving on it and mm. you know this i mean this provokes a good conversation when we say integrity and this idea that you're known for your candor that you only say things about fellow employees that you say to their face like oh, their face yeah yeah like this is really interesting right Okay, so you have that conversation with the person. Imagine I'm the person. Okay, what do you say to me? Well, tell me about what happened. This is what I had. This is what was reported to me. Yeah, uh, we no, were in a meeting, yeah. right? Like, let's say, mm -hmm. just yeah, you're doing I think, great. You know, difficult conversations. I would probably go with that framework because that's a pretty decent framework, I think, for situations that are high tense like this. You start with what happened. Let's let's just talk about what happened. And perhaps I wasn't in that room and I just want to hear your perspective of like, well, what happened? Just tell me. Yeah. I was, Hopefully they would express that. We were a little bored. We were a little bored. Um, I was venting. We didn't, obviously didn't know it was a public slack. Um, kind of a stupid thing to do. Sorry. <laughs> and I would probably point back at our core values and be like, okay, so... I understand that you were venting, you know, that it was a stupid thing to do and you're admitting that you behaved in a fashion that was incongruent with what we agree to as an organization. Um, and I would probably put there, 
what do you think you should do now? Because this has been elevated to me. And now I am managing this. And, you know, I would probably be pretty forward about it and be like, hey, Gib, what what do you think we should hey, do I, to I, recover? I mean, I I already told you that was stupid. I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed, I, you know. Let's let bygones be bygones. It was three months ago, you know, and I continued to deliver results. It was just a, I mean, honestly, if I had gotten the settings right, we, we, we wouldn't even have to be talking about this. No big deal. No big deal. Yeah. Why, you think this is a big deal? I would say so. Okay, so, so now you're bumping into an employee that maybe doesn't think this value of integrity is as, as important as you do, Jenny, right? I think so. And it's so. possible that the person is tone deaf, right? Mm. Um, and by the way, do you think this person is going to engage in this type of activity in the future? I mean, there's not enough information to go by. I, I'm wondering if it was an, a bad day. But, but the fact that they're dismissive of it does put alarms up for me. Yeah. Okay, so you want to know what the outcome on this case was? All three were was were were fired. All three. That's what I. Th- that's what I would expect. Yeah. No. Yeah. So and and this obviously this is a real case. I happened to read about it last week. There's a bunch of things that are unknown to me. And of course, this if if we had real data, real information, there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk. About. Like, okay, what? Tell me more about what was said. Right. I mean, right. The rumor was this was trash talking the boss, but apparently. It was trash talking of peers. I don't know if that makes a difference or not. And it got picked up by the press, right? That's why I know about it. There was a story about it. Um, mm. But but the, the mega point here is this is how companies have conversations about what they value and they don't. What's important and how much? And what are the skills and behaviors expected of every employee in the building? And it's funny at the at the beginning of this conversation, I expected to to see the word candor, the value of candor, and then I realized that Netflix had modified it. You know, it's now called integrity, and that idea mm-hmm. I was searching for—you'd only say things directly to their face—is is right. now hiding in integrity. And this this shares something else, which is cultures change, right? They're modified forever. I mean, I, I could almost see the edits the switch from candor as a value to integrity as a value with, with candor, you know, being put as one of the skills and behaviors that's expected of, of folks that are acting with integrity. Anyways. So my, my, my mega point, remember when I talked about the, the three legs of the stool, uh, this, this, this was a case about people, right? But it could have been a case about product. What's the right thing for a product, uh, Mm. you know, to do like, Gosh, in a minute we'll do a, a, a we'll, we'll apply uh, uh, values uh, culture to a product decision. Anyway, but my point is for me, and, and I've had time in the last five years to do lots of talks and write and reflect about things. But in product leadership, it's all about having a strategy, having a plan. You know these theories and hypotheses about how you'll delight customers in hard to copy, margin enhancing ways, and then. The plan meets the light of day through these experiments, and that's the consumer science. You know, you joke, better living through math and statistics, just high, fast-paced experimentation to see what works or doesn't. Uh, but then the third is the storehouse of knowledge for an organization over time, because very few companies will stay at, at a company for, for the 30 or 40 years it takes to, to build a world-class company. It's actually the values, these very specific skills and behaviors skills and behaviors of employees that almost provide the accumulated knowledge and uh, help people to make great decisions about people, product, and the business. I mean, so I want to dig more here because I don't know if I've ever come across anyone more direct as you when it comes to your thoughts about building a team. And in part because I was reading one of your Ask Gib newsletters where you mentioned that fire drills are the real challenge for the first three months of any product leader. It's one of the many, uh, which you articulate. And so the question I was curious about was, how do you navigate this in an organization and are able to roll out these changes, especially, let's say we're talking about a startup or a scale-up, which you've had lots of experience in, 
where people do look at this as friends, family, or starters who helped build the company to the point where it is today. And yet, you, know, you, you mentioned maybe they don't have the skills or the behaviors to take it to the next level. And you're just going to have to right size, quote unquote, and I'm using really big air quotes here. You yeah. have to right size your team to take it to that, quote, you know, that proverbial next level. How do you navigate that? I read the piece and I was like, that all makes sense to me. A lot of people will probably think, wow, that's really harsh. Um, but I, I think it is necessary. Reorgs happen, as Camille Fournier would say. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? Like navigating this and how to do it in a way where you minimize the impact to the whole organization because it is people will feel things. It's, people are people; they'll feel things. And they understand it's business, but it is they've invested their lives in it to some extent. These are their buddies. Yeah. Okay. So so we're talking now. Let, let's think of it as product leadership, and yeah. leadership is about to some degree, you're trying to inspire change, right? Mm. Um, and you just gave one of the hardest examples, right? So I arrive at a 50-person startup, and they, you know, the college roommate of the CEO um, uh, is the de facto product leader. They now have three or four years of product leadership experience and the and the startup is looking for somebody who's been there and done that that's me right um you know historically my thing is i look for startups with a proof of concept that are ready to scale and then i help them to scale and mm. and the, the so i show up and what are the changes i'm trying to make right usually it's about helping startups become more disciplined more focused Right. Um, and so what does that look like? So, for instance, at Netflix, it was going from let's try a bunch of stuff and see what works to let's build this system of consumer science so that we can test anything and everything to understand what really resonates with customers and what doesn't. I mean, the trickiest part there is the extent to which they value and are willing to pay for stuff like yeah some people might like that but do they like it enough to to not quit that month right this requires right. a real level of discipline and then to your point you know the hardest thing are the people issues so you've got that that person who is the roommate of the ceo uh they did a fine job getting the company from here to there and the question is can they're a starter, right? I mean, starting is really hard. Like, there's freaking nothing. There's four people in a room, and they have all these ideas, and they're just trying to make stuff happen, right? Right. And then, you know, and they hired all their roommates and their uncle and their cousin and who knows, right? You know, people they could talk into the job. Um, but the, the hardest part is you're trying to build a team that can scale. You know, my experience at Netflix, about half of that startup team had the skills to scale to the next level. They were willing to engage in the consumer science. You know, it's a lot of work. You have to do like two versions of stuff to figure out which is better, right? Like, oh, that's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the people. So my experience at Netflix, for instance, um, I did work a lot with one of the teams. It was essentially the personalization team to help set up. Um, some of this discipline to make sure that they were using the tools uh, of A-B testing, for instance, well, they were using the qualitative research tools that were available to them. They were doing surveys. They were digging in the dirt of existing data, all those things. They set a cogent strategy for how personalization would play out over time. You know, they had these high-level theories and hypotheses. One, for instance, was it would be all about explicit data, get the ratings. Another, it was an implicit it knew that you didn't have to ask people. Like if you watch 30 seconds of a I was about to say, and you and abandoned versus, yeah, exactly. right. That's good learning. Exactly. Yeah, and then they sense. knew there was a ton of data to, to to capture about the a customer's taste, but also all the data about movie. And then all the, the, the art was creating algorithms to connect. You know, we know what you like and don't like. We have the content of the movies, the data about that. And how do you magically connect so that we'll help to find you, Johnny, movies that you'll love? And that's basically the algorithm work. So anyway, I'm giving you a sense of the high-level personalization strategy at Netflix. 
Uh, I, you know, I, I probably spend like 50% of my time with that one swim lane, the personalization swim lane. I you know, saw I had, you say yeah, that. You yeah. spent, I, you said it in your articles, you spend more than half of your time with the swim lane that has the highest potential to deliver results. And, my and question so came, what do you do with the rest of them? Yeah, yeah. Well, honestly, what's <laughs> right. going on there is you're just trying to develop a role model, right? And you hope that okay. they'll have results. And what's going on? Uh, the rest of, honestly, the rest of the teams kind of like it, right? Like I'm not bugging them, right? But then what I'll do is mm. I'll nicely suggest, why don't you go to their monthly strategy meeting and see what's going on there, right? Like I'm so enforcing to, good behavior with modeling that good behavior and just pointing in that direction because people don't like, like to be told look what there. to do, yeah, and they don't they like don't. to be told how to do it, right? Because they want enough autonomy uh, and, and they want the tools and the resources that they need. Um, but that was, huh. yeah, and actually, my, if I look back, my first year at Netflix, it was really get the right team in place by the end of the year. And yeah, half the people were wrong, and I had to do a lot of hiring. Um, you know, the tools and systems, that was that A-B testing and, the, you know, having people, making sure people had access to the, to the qualitative, the focus groups, the usability. To the they need existing data. They need right? the resources, or else right? They yep. will be frustrated. They'll be like, right. I know what to do. I don't know yeah. how I'm going to do it. Yeah. So the people, the tools, the systems. And then, you know, for me, making sure I was doing a, a good enough job articulating a product vision. Listen, we're going to get big on DVD and then we're going to lead streaming. Okay. And once we're all digital, then we can expand internationally. Okay. How and many then, times did you repeat that? Because you're sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would say on average, probably, I would, you know, probably weekly, right? So 50 I hear times a year. Product leaders tell me this all the time. They're like, did you not sign up for this company with this very premise? And why do I have to keep repeating myself? No, no, did no. you not, no, you know, I hear this yeah. sometimes. I mean, like, the trick, the trick is you, you don't want to sound pedantic, right? You don't right. want to sound, of course. so you're always <laughs> like, okay, here's an example, right? Like we actually um, got within a week of launching a DVD by mail service in in the UK, right? So you know we said we're going to get big on DVD and then we're going to lead streaming, right, but we got ahead right. ahead of ourselves. So and, and it, this is a this is a big and wild deal. Imagine investing a year and a half of you know building a DVD by mail service in the UK. Uh, and we stopped at one week to go. And for me, it's like, oh, what were we thinking? We said we were going to get big on DVD and then we were going to lead streaming and then we would go international. Why did we get ahead of ourselves? Right. So right. I'm just I, I'm reinforcing <laughs> like through my <laughs> idiocy. Right. Oh, you know, no. th- this is what we're supposed to do. Anyway, so, so there's all, all sorts of artful ways to do that. Um, anyways, back to, you're correct that I mean, I joke that uh, working with humans is hard. Right. Um, uh, and helping them get aligned, helping them to develop shared language, helping them to be disciplined about what their jobs are. That's usually through the metrics. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then nicely making sure that they're moving their metric up into the right. And if they don't, you might have the wrong person or you might or, have or a down failed hypothesis. As well. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, absolutely. there's some. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. And then. Yeah. yeah. This is this is I mean, I gave you I mean, what I learned when I come in and join a new company, which obviously I'm unwilling to do now. Um, you have to think about yourself as a, as a change agent. You're being hired to mm-hmm. to to make some new set of things happen. This, Frankly, this is true of every employee They're they're 100%. hiring you for a reason, right? And you want to be as you want to understand and be clear as possible about that that you know what it is that you're you're doing. Hey, you want to go back to metrics because I realized that you know what we're really like at 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 your company you got 180 peeps. You know we've talked about how culture, uh, you know, having a strong sense of the company culture helps reinforce these good skills and behaviors. We've talked about how strategy can get everybody aligned. We acknowledge right. the need for the, the experimentation because you don't know what works or doesn't, right? Right. But so now you're trying to bring it down to an individual level. So imagine I hired Brent Arey at Netflix to launch our streaming service. 
Okay. Okay. So Netflix is a DVD by mail company. Uh, we've grown from 2005 to one or two million to 2007, probably six million members. And now okay. it's January 2007, and we're launching our first streaming product. If you were the product manager and, and streaming is your job, mm-hmm. and I asked you to tell me the one metric that will define your job so that you know you're doing a good or bad job, what would that one metric be? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out to make sure that there are no abstractions. I mean, it would be, is the subscriber base gets retained and growing like that's what i would so is let's look at it specifically is the subscriber base engaged in streaming okay in streaming Uh, yes yeah yeah and so how do we measure that that makes sense to me yeah how do we measure what what is engaged in streaming look like what what, what's the specific data we're going to measure i mean to me that would be like probably you know some amount of minutes or hours maybe watched per fill in the blank amount of time. That's great. That's great. That so, makes sense uh, to me. so now we're going to dig in the dirt and we're going to put some specifics. So it turns out that we decided the percentage of members that watch at least 15 minutes in the course of a month of streaming and the 15 minutes, that was the smallest TV episode. By the way, we only launched with 300 titles. They really sucked. Okay. Um, so it was the percentage of members who watch at least 15 minutes in a month. Okay, mm-hmm. so Jenny, now I'm going to nicely ask you to forecast. What percentage of members are going to watch at least 15 minutes in, in their first month with the service? At launch. How, What's it going to be? At launch, I would like to see somewhere, I would like to see at least half. Like, I feel like I would feel okay. confident if okay. at least half. Okay. Now, there's a, there's a difference between what you would like to see and, and what, what you think the will answer happen. is going to be. Fair okay. enough. Yes. So, okay. okay. I've learned a few things about you today. Oh, I'll darn. tell you after you answer this next <laughs> question. <laughs> okay. You know, so, I'm going to say, okay, so I'm gonna say 40 to 40. Okay. okay. Go ahead. Well, no, no. You, you, you told me. You said 40%. You said, yeah. uh, we're going to launch this. And at least 40% of our members are going to watch at least 15 minutes of streaming in their yeah. first month. That's your guess, right? That's my and guess. And the answer is... Five percent. So at launch, five percent of our members watched at least fifteen minutes in their first month. By the way, so so the issue I'm teasing out with you is what's the value of a forecast here, Jenny? That you like? Well, how the heck could you be expected to know the answer to that question? You've got no data, right? Now you have some data. Right. Go ahead. Right. So now you have some data. Well. One thing I remember, because I, I remember in university, I was talking to my professor and he was like, I want you all to know this. You're in a forecasting class and every answer you'll give me is wrong. Yes. Yeah. That's and I, I just remember yeah. all of us just looked at our books and we were like, what are we actually do? Why are we doing this? Well, and, and <laughs> He's so like, the but reason I will I... give you models, but it will be based on some amount of data. So just note, the... we'll go through Holt Winters, we'll go through all of these things, yeah, but he's yeah. like... They will all be wrong, folks. Just yeah. chill out. So anyway. So think of them as guesses. And the only reason I did this was yeah. that. So and now I'm kind of nice. I'm nicely come back to a world of OKRs. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the question is, how important or valuable is it to state your objective at launch here? OK, so but by the way, I've, I've now said at launch, we had 5% of members who engaged watching at least 15 minutes their first month. Sure. Jenny, what what would you, after a year, what would you want that number to grow to? From 5% to what number? This is defining your job. Oh, gosh. I Just fire me now, Gib. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Come on. Honestly, I say, listen, hey, launch is good. We got 5% of our members watching at least 15 minutes a month. We're learning a ton, right? Like the answer is we got to get some freaking good content, right? Uh, Right now they're watching on their laptops. Let's figure out how the hell to get them to TV, right? But by the end of the year, Jenny, what would you like to drive that metric to? I would like to see like a 3X of that. Okay. So you want to go from 5 to 15%. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so guess what? With with that little piece of data, 
you are so much better at guessing the future. So we actually drove it to 20%, okay? So you, your second guess was so much closer, right? And which is to say that, again, your initial forecast, it sucked, Jenny, okay? Because right. you had no data. I knew nothing. Right? I, I yeah, knew exactly. nothing. Right. Yeah, so now you know it's 5%. You're like, well, I'd like to get it to 15 You know, And I said, yeah, you're pretty damn close. We got it to 20%. Um, but anyways, this comes back to metrics. So imagine everybody in the building can define their job through a metric. Everybody, right? right? So we have uh, things like a product vision that help people get moving in the right direction. We have these articulation, these strategies. We're experimenting like crazy. You know, we have these cultures and values that help reinforce the skills and behaviors that we see. And and back to the strategy, you know, everyone's got metrics that they're trying to move. Like, hey, that's cool, right? And, And guess what? They sort of align up. Like, so Todd Yellen, he was the personalization person for me. You know, he was driving that metric, the percentage of members that rated at least 50 movies in, in, in their first two months. Uh, Megan Stern, her metric was was really about making a simple, easy experience. The percentage of members in their very first session with the service who added at least three DVDs to their, to queue. their watch list. Right. Yeah. Yep. yeah, to their yeah. watch list, same difference. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyways, so I'm just trying to, to share with you what discipline looks like over time. Like mm. five or 10 people, none of this matters, right? Like, honestly, if you have five or 10 people, I, I don't really think it's worth time articulating your values. I mean, actually, the reason is occasionally it is because when they start hiring like crazy, it's good to have a shared You have to have a pattern. Like this yeah. is what we should, yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so I'm, not, I'm coming back to my, my three-legged stool again. You know, I, I was defining these metrics that that are part of the strategy acknowledging that half the stuff that you do through the experimentation or consumer science will work or not and then you know i'm gently reasserting the important values or skills and behaviors to create an environment that's not full of rules and processes but people have but enough understanding of what though. good behavior looks yeah, like yeah absolutely yeah. okay so you want should we come back to okrs uh no, you we don't can. want to do OKRs today. I'm nervous. You, you, you make me said, nervous with OKR nerves because <laughs> oh, well, let's yes, you have. Let's talk well, about OKRs. Let's talk Come about on. OKRs Can't because, we? you know, most people on this show believe it to be a very powerful framework to help with all of the things that we've kind of you know, discussed over the course of this episode, you know, being focused, yeah. you know, what the heck is happening? Is there any misalignment? Let's get them back on track. Let's make sure that we've got metrics so that we actually know if we're making meaningful progress and assign ownership and accountability where necessary. But I know totally. pre- based on what you've written and your experience yeah. set that at some point you mentioned that you were using OKRs and now via your experience set with Netflix and beyond, Strategy metrics and tactics are your kind of go-to in the tool belt. I'm curious now, like, are you for or against? And you strike me as a very pragmatic person, which to me is like, well, if it works for you, go for it. And if it doesn't, then don't. Where are you now on that spectrum of of OKRs? I, I, I think you got it, which is, so think of me now as a teacher. So I'm trying to provide help to product leaders all over the world in an extremely leveraged way, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, for instance, being a product coach, there's no leverage there. I mean, really. Like if you could help 20 people in a year, that'd be amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Writing, podcast talks, you know, now, you know, now I might be able to help 10,000 people a year. And all I'm doing as a teacher is I'm sharing tools, models, and frameworks that I Mm -hmm. think are helpful. And I am providing them in a way that you don't need me, (laughs) okay? I just want to contrast being a teacher from being a consultant. A consultant Mm -hmm. also uses tools, models, and frameworks, except they're not fully transparent how to use them because they need you to hire them to do that, okay? So as a teacher, I'm providing the tools, models, and frameworks. The ones that I have found to be helpful, and by the way, there's lots of tools, models, and frameworks that I've used or or I've created that weren't helpful. Like, okay, let's get rid of them, okay? Right. Um, but to your answer, yeah, I mean, short answer, when I was at Electronic Arts, uh, it was an OKR shop. shop. 
Um, and so, you know, we were required to do our objectives and key results every quarter. Years later, I showed up at Netflix. You know, it's like one of my questions the first day. Hey, do you guys do OKRs? They said, no. You know, we used to, but we didn't find the time and energy to 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 be it, – it didn't give us enough – it wasn't worthwhile enough because OKRs are work, right? And then the other thing, and, and I, I worked to try to illustrate this already, oftentimes it was introducing false precision. So when I asked you to forecast – what you know? What percentage of members would watch at least fifteen minutes in the first month? At Your launch. first guess was forty percent at launch. Right. Yeah, that's right. false precision. And the good news is you spent about twelve seconds, you know, thinking it through. It would have been bad if you spent three weeks, you know, trying to pro- provide that forecast For based sure. on nothing. Okay. For so, sure. So, um, you know, my guess is probably maybe two thirds of the world uses OKRs. I, I don't really know, um, but it's funny. It, and so I have, you're correct. And ask given newsletter, people have asked me about this. And I tried to explain what we're talking about now. But what I did say is, listen, this SMT framework, you have a strategy. The strategy is personalization. You have a, or I, we'll do it for streaming. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're providing instant access to movies. That's essentially what streaming was when we launched it. Um, and the metric was percentage of members that watch at least 15 minutes a month. And then the tactics or projects was get from 300 to 1,000 titles, get from the laptop to TV-based systems, you know, get to the freaking phone, right? Uh, do binge watching, you know, get a lot of focus on episodic TV. You know, th- those were the tactics or projects. Um, it's not hard to, you know, so Brent Aries, OKR, his objective might have been to get percentage of members who watched at least 15 minutes a month to 20% by the end of year one, right? That would be the, the objective. And, and, and then you might say by end of year one, you know, get from 300 to 1,000 titles, right? You might say by end of year one, get rid of Silverlight, the, Silverlight, the digital rights management system that sucked and made it hard for people to download and play movies instantly. So I'm, I'm just saying that my tools, models, and frameworks are not inconsistent with OKRs. So, And I'm certainly not saying OKRs are bad. It's funny when people realize that I don't do OKRs, they actually think I'm not um, data-focused enough. And then they, they sort of see how I live my life and like, okay, forget it, Gib. Like, you, you, you're almost compulsive, right? Like if you look at my essay, at the end of every essay, I, I have a proxy metric for everything. Um, a proxy metric, remember Netflix, the big dog metric was retention, but retention is so hard to measure and move. You need these proxy metrics. The proxy metrics, the two that we've discussed here, one was percentage of members who stream at least 15 minutes a month. The personalization one was the percentage of members who rate at least 50 things. Um, my proxy metric for writing, I do a net promoter score at the bottom of every essay. There's a link and, and I've collected hundreds and thousands of these. And this is how I've learned, you know, okay, that was a good essay. That was a bad essay. Right. Um, and, and actually there's an ask of essay that debates what's the right proxy metric for an essay. turns out there's another one that's interesting, which is the, the number of shares. Mm. So how many shares, um, did an essay get, but it, it, it correlates so strongly with net promoter score and net promoter score. I get the data really quickly and I have amazing qualitative feedback. Hey, I, I, you know, I gave it a nine and what I and really liked one. about it. Yeah. It was full of examples from products right. I know. Right. Yep. Makes sense. Oh, it, it had stories like it shouldn't shock you. Like, you know, when I talk about anything, it's full of examples and stories and illustrations and cases, right? This is how I've learned what works and what doesn't. Anyways, you're, 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 you're only learning that I'm odd, quirky, and this is a lot of fun for me. <laughs> no, I absolutely appreciate this because I, I, I have similar tendencies, I guess. Should I, should I show that on the show? I don't know, but there you have it, folks. Of course you should. Of course you should, right? We all need to be our authentic Uh, selves. Absolutely. Well, I've thoroughly just enjoyed this conversation. Maybe we tie it up real quick with some quick fire questions at the end, because I love to do this. 
What's top of mind for you now? Honestly, it's summer. Okay. Uh, and, and, and there are patterns to my life. Um, but so far, I've done two week-long backpacking trips. You know, I tell people, hey, I'm going off the grid. I mean, honestly, like I, I have no access, right? Um, and then I have put two life maintenance projects at the top of my list. So I am, we have a house that was built in 1938 in Burlingame, California, and I'm making sure it lasts the next 20 years. And then we bought a house in Bend, Oregon, which that's where I can mountain bike every day. And from December one to May 30, I can ski every day. Um, so those are the things that are at the top of my priority list right now. Uh, from a creative challenge point of view, um, uh, you know, I should figure out how to put a book out there. So if you look very carefully at my essays on Medium, I, I wrote a series, How to Define Your Product Strategy. It yeah. looks strangely like a product strategy book. It kind <laughs> right? of does. The 12 pieces, chapters, exactly. I'm kind of yeah. feeling it. it it just it just reflects my laziness and lack of discipline for, <laughs> for my unwillingness to put it over the, the finish line. Uh, what else is on my mind? Um, well, uh, we just announced yesterday the next product leader summit. Cool. So that's we will have like a thousand people will apply to attend. It's a virtual event. It's November 10th. People should apply. But the people who get in. Are, are probably going to be kind of sort of head of product or VP of okay. product or a director level product leader at a, at a larger organization. It's 50-50. So the cool thing is you apply and then we invite you or don't. But that means by definition that half of these 120 people will be men and half will be women. It also means that 20% will be black or Latinx. So um, this is one of my labors of love. Um, and it's one of my tactics for how do we provide or how do I provide? I, I have a team for that, right? We're, we're all pals, mm -hmm. but um, how do you help product leaders to be product leaders in a leveraged way? Uh, and, and the answer is connect them all so that they can help each other. <laughs> that sounds reasonable. Yeah. That sounds so I don't reasonable. have to be there, right? Like, Right. Like, oh, you you should talk to this person. They, they, they're engaged in that same. Pro oh, same oh, kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe you should oh, exchange notes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't talk to me about your, <laughs> your from scratch startup because I suck at that. Right. But this person is really good at it. Right. Very cool. Or don't talk to me about the right organization for an 8,000 person company because shoot me. I, I've never worked at a company <laughs> that large. But this person, they're right. smart. They know how to do that. They're a super scaler. That's my language. Super so. scaler. So you mentioned yeah. you have a team. What would you say you appreciate most about them? Oh, well, this team, um, it's Dan Olson, Ha, Wen, and Sarah Bernard. Uh, the four of us have done, this is our fifth year for doing the Product Leader Summit. You nice. know, honestly, um, well, first of all, I like I suck at execution, like and, and some of them are talented in that way. So, you know, we have to have people compliment our skills. Uh, you know, in the old days, if you stop working for a company every day, you have social needs. And so they mm -hmm. used to provide it. But I, my social needs are met now in a zillion different ways. Um, so, I mean, the, th the main thing I appreciate is we're all four are aligned and helping to provide product leadership help to the world of product leaders. I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to help other people to dent the universe, which is, that's what product leadership is about, you know, provide providing meaningful change to make the world somehow better uh, through the stuff that we build. I think that so, totally makes uh, sense. And they're all, they're all aligned in that and they're willing to engage mm. in this labor of love project and, and, uh, and do the work for nothing. Yeah. Right? Wow. That's what labor of love is all about. <laughs> I, for nothing, folks. Just you heard that on the show. And and they deserve a major shout out for what I think they're doing for the product community and leadership at large because it it's tough work. It's fun work, yeah. but it's tough work. Last question. Yeah, yeah. So the, the title or the, the name of this podcast is Dreams with Deadlines. What is Gibbs' dream with the deadline or not? Well, for sure, I should probably get a book out in the next year, right? Um, 
well, here's another interesting one. I so so much most most of my work is essentially creative challenge. Um, and one of the weird things that I do as a speaker is I tend to put out two to three new talks a year. So mm. by the end of the year, I should have two or three new talks. Um, so a book within a year, two or three new talks by the end of this year. And then frankly, navigating the shift from virtual back to in-person, um, it's going to be a little weird. Uh, I got so good at virtual, like I, I, my, my, so I figured out how to get net promoter score for virtual higher than in-person things. Right. And I can tell you exactly how. So then I'm going to be like, okay, how do I get in-person experiences to that high bar virtual? <laughs> so so think oh, about gosh. it. In a virtual experience, I know everybody's name. I just looked at, oh, Jenny, what do you think, right? I can't do that in a, in a large audience. <laughs> um, so it, it, it talks are all about engagement, right? How do you engage the audience? How do you keep them on the edge of the seat? Uh, and there's nothing like a good cold call. Hey, Jenny. What do you? What would you do if these three employees were <laughs> trash talking their peers? Um, would you? Would you do uh, the, one of three things? Oh my gosh! <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you know, for me, I think it's, you know, I'm simply trying to age gracefully. So mm. you know, making sure I ski and mountain bike and road bike enough, um, backpack as well you know, do that serious life maintenance of buying furniture and making sure houses don't drift into the dirt and staying current with product. And and I work with a lot of people, almost by definition, everybody I work with is younger than me. And that's one tactic for aging gracefully, right? (laughs) Like I know what the word bougie means, which I wouldn't know if I didn't (laughs) didn't have like 24-year-olds from Stanford. Like, okay, wait a minute. Is a Prius bougie? <laughs> My argument, like, I have two Priuses. That's not bougie. And they're like, yeah, Priuses are bougie. You know, and they're, they're very specific. They're absolutely def- bougie. Yeah. <laughs> their, their specific definition is it, 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 Priuses are not easily accessible to the middle class. That was That's like, right. oh, that was a very nuanced definition. And, of course, our Tesla Y is very bougie. <laughs> yes. So as the young kids would say, Gib, it sounds like you are living your best life and I am happy for you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and sometimes felt like I was in the hot seat, but I think that's probably good. It, you know, it brings things home. So thanks so much. Yeah, you're very welcome, Jenny. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.